0: for every family next Sunday morning and it's not a bag of candy that comes from my dad Um, and uh, so if you're not here next Sunday morning you don't get one well actually you can but you'll have to pay for it Uh, um, passive-aggressive maybe but I think we need to fill the house on Christmas Day in fact I think we need to fill the house every Sunday Uh, So Wednesday night, our prayer and praise time. Uh, There's never enough Sundays for me to sing all the Christmas songs I want to sing. So Wednesday night, we're going to devote most of that hour to singing Christmas carols, the old ones, a few of the new ones. And if you can make that, it would be really great uh, to be part of that. Just having a, a time of thanking the Lord for the Incarnation and all that that means to us, from singing some of those great old songs um, that we don't have enough time on Sunday morning to sing because I want to preach. So, this morning we are in the fifth chapter of First John again. A letter written by the last of the living twelve apostles who walked with Jesus, eyewitnesses to his miracles, to his teachings, This man who wrote this book, he was an eyewitness to the transfiguration of Jesus. He was there when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and the blood came from his brow. He was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. He went into the empty tomb and saw the empty grave clothes. At the time of this writing, John is In his late 80s, early 90s perhaps, he is a a man who's experienced a full life, complete with trials, tribulations, and persecutions. The first note this morning as we go into this fifth chapter is this. It is in the difficult times of life that we learn the most. It is in the difficult times of life that we learn the most. I didn't put these next three lines in your notes, but you need to know these. It's the time. It's in the difficult times that we learn the most about God. That's when you discover his faithfulness. That's when you discover his power to intervene. That's when you discover that Romans 8.28 is really true. It is in the difficult times of life that we learn the most about ourselves. That kind of strips away all of the pretense and the mask that we wear as we become vulnerable before the Lord. It is in the difficult times of life that we learn the most the principles of life that never change. It's in the difficult times that we learn the most about principles of life that never change. Can't say I really like that truth, but that's the way it is. The book of 1 John is written by a man who has experienced so much of those things. And at this point in his life, he can tell you what's really important. I, I personally, in case you haven't noticed, enjoy this, this book, and i uh, will digging into it, into what John has to say. I find it very inspiring to uh, listen to this guy who's up in years, an elderly man, as he exhorts us to live in fellowship with the Father and with one another. I told you that in his latter days he wasn't able to walk all that well, and they would pack him and they would carry him and they'd bring him into the fellowship of the church, and they would say, John, speak to us. Give us something really important to know. And he would say, my little children love one another. My little children love one another. He understood that that was what it was all about. As I read this letter, I don't know about you, but I can't help but remember John in his early days. He's the one, him and his brother, Jesus had a nickname for him. What's Jesus' nickname for you? He called them the Sons of Thunder. Now, we're not really sure in that context why he gave them that name, but in Luke chapter 9, there's a couple of, of incidences that give us just a little insight into John as a young man. John comes to Jesus and said, hey, we saw this dude down here preaching and, and praying for people and people being healed, and he was doing it in your name, and he's not one of us, and I told him to stop. And that's my paraphrase. Jesus said, hey, if he's not against us, he's for us, so let him do it, man. And then... In that same chapter, it says Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem in Galilee. And to get to Jerusalem, he had to go through Samaria, where he chose to. And he sent some guys ahead to a city and a village in Samaria and said, we'd like a place to stay. And they wouldn't, we don't want you here. You're on your way to Jerusalem, we don't want you here. John and his brother James came back to Jesus and said, they don't want you here, so we call fire down from heaven and burn up that city. That was the young man. I mean, he was full of passion. He was full of all kinds of spiritual energy, enthusiasm, zeal. Not a lot of wisdom to go along with it. But as he's writing to these churches now at the end of his life, Churches infiltrated by false doctrine. I see a different kind of enthusiasm, far more profound, far more profound. Rather than looking for places to, to release the blast of nuclear fire, he's doing everything he can to encourage these people. Love God and love one another. Love God, love one another. He's combating the, the, the false teaching that Christianity has nothing to do with your heart, it's all about your head and this special knowledge that only a few of us get to have and maybe you get to be one of us, maybe you don't. John wants him to know about far more than knowledge. It's about a relationship with a living God, a relationship. It's about fellowship with God and One another. Doing life together. Participating in the life of Jesus. Jesus participating in my life. And you and I participating in each other's life. Christianity is all about love. We've talked about three great statements that John made more than once. And just so you never forget them. John chapter 4. We read that God is spirit. God is spirit. He's not confined in... God himself, not confined to a body, not confined to a place, spirit. So that makes it even more amazing that Jesus allowed himself to put in a human body. Then we read in the first chapter of 1 John that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You can trust him explicitly. God is light. And then we talked about it from John, the fourth chapter, that God is love. That's his very essence, his very nature. Not just that God loves, but God is love. God is light. God is spirit. And you can't separate the three. They all three go together. That's who God is. We have been looking at these last two, God is light and God is love, numerous times because John, as he writes, he keeps going in circles uh, up, up the spirals, coming back to the same thoughts and expounding on them. There's another way that we could diagram or outline the letter of 1 John. And I just want to throw this out for you to think about. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But there's this theme, these themes of of fellowship that goes from the chapter 1 clear through chapter 5. The theme of fellowship with Christ. Fellowship of Christ. Maintaining fellowship with Him. Walking in the light as He is in the light. Doing life with Him. The fellowship of Christ. Fellowship with Christ. We talked about maintaining truth. Maintaining truth. He talked about maintaining righteousness. Walking, again, walking in the light. Walking in righteousness. Walking in obedience. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. He talks about maintaining love. Maintaining love. Loving God. And we prove that we love God because we love each other. And if we don't love each other. And they can, this, this last chapter is about maintaining our insure, assurance or maintaining our confidence. Being able to stand firm in our, in our understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ. And not allowing the world to suck us in. And the relationship between these five themes that run through these five chapters are very important. The, the first link, the fellowship with Christ, ends in assurance or confidence. That's the kind of life everybody's looking for. A life of confidence. A life of being self-assured. A life of being poised. Able to cope with life as it comes. That, that's the ideal that Humanity is seeking for in all the wrong places. But we find it in fellowship with Christ, and in walking in Christ, with Christ, we become that kind of person. To me, the, the glory of our Christian faith is never that it's religious, but it's absolutely practical. It's right where we live. Doing what Christ wants us to do brings to us the full life that he promised, life to the full. Uh, when we are walking with Christ and we understand who we are, we're confident, able, and adequate. Sharing with Christ, sharing life with Christ leads to a life of being confident, able, and inadequate. And, and this confident life will manifest itself in three ways. We've looked at these three ways and just again in review. As truth, as righteousness, and love. Truth, righteousness, and love. This is what John is writing to these folks about and writing to you and I about as we are in fellowship with Christ we're united with Christ it leads to a life of truth righteousness and love I remind you that three specific times uh, he said if you claim to know God but you walk in the darkness of disobedience you are a I mean he's pretty bold You are a liar. Extremely direct. If we claim to to know God and walk into disobedience, deliberate disobedience, you're lying to people and you're lying to yourself. There's an absence of righteousness of your life. It puts a lie to every claim that you make about being a Christian. In chapter 2, He said, to claim to possess the Father and yet deny the deity and the incarnation of the Son is to be a liar. If you say that you're a Christian but don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, he said, you're a liar. There's an absence of truth in your life. You're not a genuine Christian. Denial of deity and the incarnation. Thirdly, To claim to love God while you ignore or mistreat your brothers and sisters in Christ, he calls you a liar. The absence of love. So the, the presence of habitual sin, the denial of Christ, and the selfish hatred of a professed Christian experience will expose all claims to Christianity as being phony. modern terminology, you're just flat out a hypocrite is what it's saying. That's what John is trying to get across in this letter. Truth, love and righteousness, they are marks of an authentic Christian. Now in this last chapter, we're talking about assurance. He brings all these things together. They're intertwined together. And when we we allow the 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 life of truth and righteousness and love that brings this great confidence and victory in our hearts and our lives. So verse 1 of chapter 5, you say we've learned that last week. Well, I didn't finish my message last week. So here we are again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. Uh, A little grammar thing here. This verse is a sorites. You all know about the sorites, right? A form of compound syllogism. <laughs> I see you're all blessed by that. A syllogism is a, a form of logic. A formula of argument consisting of some propositions or, and coming, or premises and coming down to a conclusion because this is true, because this and this Therefore, this is true. For example, if you said all men are mortal, and then you said kings are men, therefore, kings are mortal. It's the kind of thing that John is saying here. He said, to believe in the incarnation involves birth from God. To be born of God involves loving God. To love God involves loving his children. Therefore, to believe in the incarnation involves loving God's children. So you cannot celebrate Christmas alone. Just throw that out there. He says if you believe in the incarnation, you're going to love the family of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. First part of that verse right there, that is the very basis of what it means to be a Christian. I shared it a week ago in a funeral service. I shared it yesterday in a funeral service. Last week for a 13-month-old child. Yesterday for a 92-year-old man. But the message is the same. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. One does not become a Christian by doing a list of good things. You do not become a Christian by obtaining a certain degree of knowledge about theology. Becoming a Christian is a matter of faith. Believing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man. That he died on the cross and that the Father raised him from the dead. And when I believe in my heart and confess it with my mouth, there's something that takes place in my being. I am born again. Again, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. I want to talk to you a minute for about this, this word believing. Believing. It is a verb. It is a verb. It's an action word. It means to believe in something or someone to the point that you entrust them with something. Something. In this case, it means to entrust your life to Jesus Christ. It's more than mental assent. The Gnostics, they were all about what you believed up here. It's more than mental assent to believe that Jesus came and did all these things. It's more than acknowledging, yes, Jesus lived here, and I believe who he, he says he is. It means I accept that premise for my life. It means grabbing hold of that truth for myself. You see, remember James when he's writing his letter to people who were proud of things that they knew mentally? He said, James 2.19, You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Written in between that, are the demons saved? No. No. If you have faith... If you, if you believe, you will show it by your actions. What's this? What's this chair good for? You're all sitting in one, aren't you, this morning? Why did you sit in it? You had great confidence that this chair was going to hold you up when you sat down in it. Amen? Amen. Every once in a while when I think about it, I look to see if anybody ch- checks it out before you sit down. You just entrust your body to rest in that chair until I get done talking. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who say, yes, I believe in Jesus. But there are, it's like they're carrying a chair around. Because they've never entrusted their life to Jesus. And it really becomes more of a burden than it does a blessing because they have not rested their life in the fact that Jesus Christ died for me and I have entrusted my whole life to him. And I know that I know that I know that he lives in my heart, that he is the Son of God, that he's coming again, believing I must. I must put it into action. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Born of God. I used that phrase, born again, a moment ago. John 1.12 says this, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Born of God. There's this miracle that takes place inside where my spirit is born again. And when you're born again, you suddenly have new priorities, you have new sympathies, you have new purposes, because you have a new spirit living inside of you. You enter into a living and vital relationship with God. To the point that the Spirit inside us prompts us to understand that we call God our Father. We know that we've been adopted into the forever family of God. Do you know that God really knows your name? He really knows your name, He knows where you live, He's involved in every part of your daily existence. When we are born again, we understand I have life in Jesus Christ, eternal life, and it's based on nothing that I have done. It is a gift of God by grace. I don't know that anybody's going to have the audacity to stand before God and say, well, God, I've been a really good person. I know people who think that now. But somehow I think standing before God in his holiness and his majesty. We're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm here simply because, Jesus, you died for me and your blood was shed for me. And that is my only hope. That is my only claim today is I believe in you. I'm glad that I know this morning that I have been born again. That if I should die today, that I'm going to stand in the presence of God. I hope you can say that. You can. Before you leave, it starts with a prayer. And I wouldn't put it off another moment. Because there's not a one of you that knows that you will survive this day. Everyone who believes that Jesus of the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. I read it from the NIV this time. Everyone who believes that Jesus of the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. There's an interesting story in the book of 2 Samuel about a guy named Mephibosheth remember that story Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son Jonathan was Saul's son Saul was the first king of Israel Jonathan the prince became very close friends with David who God anointed to be the second king instead of Jonathan but their hearts were knit together and they made a a commitment to each other they made a vow if anything happens to either one of us take care of my family when I'm gone take care of my family well, you remember Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. And David comes to the throne. But it took seven years for all of the tribes of Israel to receive him as their king. And he's going through all of that. And when things are, the dust kind of settles, he remembers his vow to Jonathan. And he says, are there any survivors of Jonathan's family? And a search reveals Mephibosheth, who had been swept out of the capital city when Saul and Jonathan died. And when his nursemaid, his nanny, was carrying him, she was running and fell, and as an infant, he ended up being crippled for life. But David said, bring him to the palace. Because I love Jonathan, I'm going to love Mephibosheth. And he gave him a place at the table for the rest of his life in his palace. Bible, John said, if you love the father, you're going to love his child. Everyone who's been born again, you're going to love them. Because we love the father, we love his children. We love each other. We realize we're family not because we have a mutual love for camping, for baseball, or skiing, or hunting, or fishing, or... Not because we agree on every aspect of theology. Not because we have the same taste of worship music, or preaching style, or lack thereof. We are family based upon our belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And because we love the Father. Verse 2 says this in 1 John chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. Is that one not on the screen? Thank you. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not. Burdensome. John is saying when we love God and in our hearts, there'll be some external evidence of that love in the way we live out our lives. Obedience to the Father. In John chapter 14 and 15, where Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room four times in one way or another, he said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Love will motivate us to want to please the Father. Love will motivate us to fulfill the law that Jesus gave to us, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor. And you know what? Love has a way of bringing a cheerfulness to obedience. This next line is not in your notes, but it should be on the screen. Christianity is not about a list of do's and don'ts. Now, when I was a young kid, you would have a hard time convincing me of that because that's what we heard about a lot. About all the things you should not do and you don't do. You know, Christianity is about a relationship of love with God. Yeah, and because we love Him, there are things we will not do yeah. because we love Him, because He said not to do them. As we live in the light and the strength of that love, we, we, we live... The way we live is profoundly affected. The priority of our lives becomes pleasing the Father because He loves us and we love Him. The priority of our life becomes pleasing the Father because He loves us and we love Him. I have talked to people and I know that there's probably people in the sound of my voice today because it's going over the internet not because of you who believe that if they really gave their life to Jesus Christ they would never have fun again. They feel like their life would be bogged down by all this religious stuff that is totally boring and meaningless. That is what religion will do for you. Again, and we're not talking about being religious. We're talking about a relationship of love, a family relationship with Father God who loves you totally and perfectly. And the more you love him, the easier it is to fulfill his commands. The more you love him, the easier it is to fulfill his commands. Remember last week we talked briefly about the story of Jacob. Working seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage, only to be duped, and he ended up working fourteen years. But after the first seven years, it said it, it seemed like days to him because of his love for Rachel. When you love the Father, it's easy to do his commands. His commands are not burdensome, they're not grievous. Jesus has not given us his law to diminish the quality of our lives, but to make it better. Jesus has not given us his law to diminish the quality of our lives, to make it better. Parents, did you tell your children to stay out of the street when they were toddlers because you wanted to take away all their fun? Did you tell them not to play with matches because you wanted to destroy their fun? It was a matter of life and death, wasn't it? It was a matter of trying to improve the quality of their life and the length of their life. We want you to live a long life. We want you to be alive. We want you to... That's the way that God's commands are. They are given to protect us. The Ten Commandments are to protect you, to protect me. Every commandment that God gave was for our protection, because he loved us. Twenty-some years ago, there's a couple articles in the newspaper in a short period of time, and, and I typed those and put them into files in my stuff that I keep for messages. And I know that this is old news, but it's so p- relevant To There was an article in the paper, and I don't remember which paper it was, where there was a hit-and-run accident that took the lives of two eighth grade girls walking along a stretch of highway. As they were walking along the sideway, a car swerved over into the shoulder, ran over them, and went back into the road and, and drove away. what I noticed at the end of this article was this tragic statement. I told her not to be walking out on that stretch of road. It is a dangerous place. Had that girl obeyed her parents, she might still be alive today. There was a second article in that same period of time. A group of kids uh, who were at their... uh, senior party or whatever uh, at the end of school, school were at a water park and, and they were told it's time to get back on the bus it's time to go instead of getting on the bus they all decided to get on one water slide and see if they could create a new record for the longest human train to go down the water slide even though the sign said one person at a time when they jammed onto that One slide, it collapsed. One of the students died, and several of them were taken to the hospital with injuries. What should have been one of the greatest days of their life ended up being one of the worst. Were those rules a burden? Those rules were there to try to protect them. God gives us his commands not to hurt us, but to protect us. God says to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor, not to make you miserable, but to set you free to enjoy the fullness of life that he said, I've come to give you life abundantly. Mark these three things down. Doing my own thing is very bad for me. Doing my own thing is very bad for me. I know, well, remember the Proverbs? There's a way that seems right unto men, but the end is death. The end is destruction. Doing God's thing is very good for me. Doing God's thing is very good for me. I didn't say doing God's thing is very easy. I just said it's very good for me. And the third thing is this. God has a plan, and it works. God has a plan, and that works. If you remember those three things, you'll do well in life. Doing my own thing is very bad for me. Doing God's thing is very good for me. God has a plan that works. Verse 4 or 5, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Three times we read the word overcome and the word victory. The implication is there is a conflict that takes place, a struggle. Victory implies combat. Victory implies some kind of competition. But in this case, I believe it's combat. We are at war. We are at war against the principalities of darkness. We are at war against the the world in the sense of the philosophy of life that forgets God. The world in the sense of, of life characterized by following ungodly and selfish tendencies. The world in the sense of living according to the cravings of my flesh or the lust of the eye, or the pride of what one has and what one does. The world is under the influence of the lies of Satan, the one called the prince of the air. He is the father of lies and the master liar. He wages war against the kingdom of God. By filling the air with lies. With half truths. And perversions of the truth. I could spend the rest of the day pointing out those lies. I'm not going to. But you know. When they came along and said. Spanking your children. This child abuse. The fact of the matter not. Spanking your children is child abuse, according to the Scripture. And I'm not in favor of beating your children unmercifully. But the Scripture says a few stripes on the seat of understanding is for their own good. What has been the result of taking away corporal punishment out of schools? Now somebody shows up with a gun and shoots down kids. That never, ever happened. And we carried guns to school in our cars. Because we went hunting after school. Amen. Anyway. <laughs> the law that president had just signed... A lie of the enemy. Deception. The preservation of marriage. It's just the opposite. God said a man shall leave his mother and a woman leave her home. And the two shall become one flesh. The world says you got rights. Don't let anyone take away your rights. You have the right to do anything you want, wherever you want to do it. After all, you're the most important person in the world. The world says if it feels good, do it. If you're in love, it's okay. The way the world gets everything out of balance, it takes the good things that God created and causes them, it gets them out of balance and they become sin. Because they ignore the Word of God and the commandments of Jesus. There are people who will try to convince you that the Bible is outdated and Christianity is for Weak people and old ladies. The good news is Jesus has overcome the world. He came into the arena of human life. He faced temptation to please himself and to forget the will of God. But he read through the lies and did not get sucked in. He remained obedient until the point of death. And in his death, the scripture says he totally defeated the powers of darkness, the power of Satan. By his death, the penalty of sin was totally paid for. He broke the hold of hell, had on humanity. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we trust our lives in him, we enter into a life of overcoming the world and overcoming sin. When we put our faith in Jesus, we enter into a life of overcoming the world, overcoming sin. How do you overcome it? How can you manifest the life of Jesus in the midst of that kind of pressure? How can you go on moment by moment, day after day, year after year, living a life that's absolutely contrary to the way of the world? And to do it for a year, 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 60 years? How do you overcome How do you do it? How you're unmoved? John said it is by faith. By faith. By faith. Jesus, I put my faith in you. I rest in you. I rest in your word. By faith. By faith. By faith of the fact that he's at work in my life right now in the midst of whatever's going on in my life, I know this, Jesus is here. Remember the story in Exodus chapter 17 when Israel is out of Egypt and they're on the way to the promised land and, and they're in the desert and they it looks like they're going to go through the land of the Amalekites and the Amalekites don't want them to pass through their land because there's a couple million of them and their flocks and herds and all of that. So at Rephidim, they're in battle. They're in combat. And uh, Amalek doesn't want the people to go through, and so his forces are fighting. You read that when Moses sent Joshua into the battle, that he went up on the side of the mountain, and there he took the rod that God had anointed, That stick, always a symbol of dependence upon the power of God, the supernatural might, and lifting that up toward heaven. As long as he held that rod above his head, Joshua and the Israelites prevailed in the battle. When his arms got tired and he dropped his hands, the tide of the battle changed. Amalek and his soldiers, the Malachites, they began to overwhelm. So up they go again, and as long as arms were up, it became very apparent that the issue of the battle did not lie solely with fighting of Israel, but in the symbol of dependence on the power of an invisible God. We have have a life of active faith, but in our active faith, there must be this dependence on the power of an invisible God who lives in us. By faith, by faith. You remember Aaron and Hur came along and each one held up one of his arms. as He held that rod and the victory was won. So, when you're in any kind of struggle, first thing you do, the ongoing thing you do, the last thing you do is pray. I'm dependent upon you and your kingdom coming. Put on the whole armor of God and stand firm and pray. But none of this is any avail unless you recognize this the life of God within you that makes the difference. It's he who wins. It's he who overcomes. Your dependence is on his activity in and through you. It's the life of God within us that makes the difference. <clears throat> I once heard of a captain of a ship who was describing what it was like to go through a storm. He described a ship in the midst of these mountainous Seas, the waves mounting on every side, the wind blowing hard, and, and the rain just coming down in torrents. The ship seems like a helpless victim in the midst of the storm. as a raging around them. Doom seems sure. But he said, I stand there on the bridge, the ship, and I grasp the railing. I can feel the throb. Throbbing of the engines deep down inside the hull storm, the wind, the waves seem to be saying to the ship, you cannot come, you cannot come. But I hear the answering throb of the engine saying, yes, we shall, yes, we shall, yes, we shall, and so we do. That's the way the battle is won. That's the way we overcome. Inside is the one. With him there is nothing that impossible. He's the one who said, all things will work together for your good because I'm at work in this situation. If we give in, if we reflect the same attitudes of the world, we become victims. We succumb to the wiles of the devil. We've lost our ten- testimony and, and the power to witness. But if our dependence is on the life of the Son of God, moment by moment, His life is in us. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Because our faith is in the one who is all-powerful, everywhere present, all-knowing. With him there is nothing that is impossible. The strong one. He was able to say, Jesus said, take heart. I have overcome the world. John chapter 16, verse 33. That's the part where he says, you will, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Is that on the screen? Okay. In the book of Revelation there are some promises made to him, overcomers. And this is a series of sermons, but I'm not going to give you the series of sermons. I'm just going to give you the seven points. Number one, to him that overcomes is eternal life. Yeah. Revelations 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Which is in the paradise of God. You remember that's the tree that Adam and Eve didn't get to because God said they can't go into eat that tree or, or they will live forever. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when we take of the fruit of the tree of life, we will live forever. A new name. A new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. Known only to him who receives it. A new name. Jacob the supplanter became Israel, the one who prevails with God. Simon the reed became Peter the rock. God has a name for you that describes who you are when you're an overcomer. Authority, Revelation 2, 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. I will give authority. I don't know what all that means, but that's a promise to the overcomer. Robes of righteousness, number four, Revelation 3, 5. He overcomes, will like them be dressed in white, I will never blot his name out from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. I love all of that part of that verse. But robes of righteousness, my name in the book of life, never to be blotted out. And Jesus acknowledges me before the Father. Number five, this is an interesting one, a memorial pillar. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city and my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on him my new name. A pillar. A memorial pillar. Six, enthronement. Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. We are seated in heavy places in Christ Jesus, but he that overcomes. Finally, an eternal inheritance. Revelation 21:7, He who overcomes will inherit all this, And I will be his God, and he will be my son. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. And you want to know what all of this is? I'm glad you asked. In your notes, the the verses just preceding this one, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth, had passed away. There was no longer any sea. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of water of life. And then it's verse 7, he who comes will inherit all of this. I will be his God. Would you stand with me as we're going to celebrate the victory we have